welcome to episode two of the Marxist Sociology Blog podcast. We had a good response to our inaugural episode, so we decided to give it another try. Sorry, I still haven't found a catchy name for the podcast, though. I'm your host, Barry Eidlin, Assistant Professor of Sociology at McGill University and a commissioning editor here at the Marxist Sociology blog. We're the official blog of the section on Marxist sociology of the American Sociological Association. You can find us online at www.marxistsociology.org. Dispossession, land grabs, eminent domain, being forced off the land, eviction. Whatever you call it, being removed from your home and livelihood against your will is a painful and traumatic experience. It is also socially and economically devastating for those affected. At the same time, dispossession has been an integral part of capitalism's emergence and development. From the enclosures of the 15th and 16th centuries in England that Marx famously talked about in Part 8 of Capital Volume 1, to the land grabs and indigenous genocide that were the foundation of settler colonies in the Americas, to so-called urban renewal projects of the post-war era that decimated communities of color in the U.S., to developmentalist infrastructure projects tearing up agricultural land across the global south, we cannot understand the global capitalist system we live in today without understanding the central role of land dispossession. These processes of land dispossession have been pervasive, but not always accepted. People have fought back against their dispossession. But why do some people resist dispossession while others acquiesce? There's been surprisingly little systematic research on this question. Most studies of resistance to land dispossession have been case studies of positive instances of resistance, leaving aside cases of negative instances of acquiescence and not looking comparatively across cases for broader patterns. That's what makes a recent paper by Michael Levian and Smriti Upadhyay of Johns Hopkins University so exciting. It's entitled, Toward a Political Sociology of Dispossession, Explaining Opposition to Capital Projects in India, and it appears in the latest issue of the journal Politics and Society. I'll leave a link to the paper in the show notes. Using systematic data on more than 23,000 major capital projects across India between 2007 and 2015, Levian and Upadhyay identify key factors that determine whether a project is likely to generate resistance or not. Some of the results may surprise you. I'm pleased to have Michael Levian and Smriti Upadhyay here with me today to talk about their research on land dispossession in India. Michael Levian is Associate Professor of Sociology at Johns Hopkins University. He's a sociologist of politics and development whose primary research has been on the drivers, consequences, and politics of land dispossession. This research has been largely ethnographic and focused on India, 
but has also included cross-national comparisons. Additional research has focused on the expansion of land-related corruption and criminality in post-liberalization India, and global trends in public opinion towards markets and inequality over the past three decades. His new research focuses on climate change and the politics of energy transition in fossil fuel producing regions in the U.S. Smriti Upadhyay recently received her PhD in sociology from Johns Hopkins University. She is a sociologist of politics, protest, and development whose primary research focuses on understanding the rise of the right wing, global social protest, inequality, and development, particularly in India. And now, on to the interview. Mike Levian and Smriti Upadhyay, welcome to the Marxist Sociology Blog podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Great. Okay, so you've got this great new paper in the latest issue of Politics and Society, and it's entitled Towards a Political Sociology of Dispossession, Explaining Opposition to Capital Projects in India. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, and I strongly encourage people to check out the paper um, if they haven't already. It is sort of hot off the pixels, if you will. Um, but I will include a link uh, in the show notes for those of you who want to want to dig in a bit deeper. Um, for now, though, let's just start with some of the basics. So first, can you just tell me a bit about what you were trying to figure out in this paper and why you thought it was important to figure this out? Um, sure. So uh, we uh, are looking at um, land, this issue of land dispossession, which is important in India, but also really um, like throughout the world. Um, and there is a uh, growing um, body of work uh, looking at um, land dispossession, but a lot of this scholarship um, focuses on either like single cases of land dispossession and you know this is like a rich uh, qualitative literature but um, we wanted to um, take a, a quantitative approach in order to sort of assess or um, adjudicate between the different factors that are emphasized in the qualitative research um, as to what's uh, driving uh, land uh, dispossession and the politics around that. Um, so the questions we were interested in um, answering were um, how we assess the relative importance of the the factors that scholars have been emphasizing in their in their qualitative work and in their case studies, and how do we um, make sense of the variation? Uh, why do some projects? Um, face uh, problems acquiring land um, and not others. Um, but at a big, at a broader level, so you're basically trying to figure out like why you get, why you get resistance in some cases, but not others. That's yeah. the big, yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So that's, so, so that's, that's a really um, interesting, important uh, question to be asking, but uh, as you said, sort of applicable to a much broader array of cases than just 
uh, land disposition in India. So you're referencing some of this previous literature and without getting into too much in the technicalities, how did you go about, what was your approach to trying to figure out this question? And I'd like to, in particular, hear you talk a bit more about the problems you saw with those previous attempts, so the, 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 the qualitative approaches that you were talking about, so why this turn to more quantitative measures, um, as well as some of the challenges you faced in trying to come up with a better answer, sort of in terms of finding good data and other issues, and then how you addressed those challenges. Um, so I think, uh, like, as I said before, it, it's not so much a problem, I think, uh, in the existing approaches, but uh, just more like, a, I guess, like a natural, um, a natural limitation in qualitative work. I mean, it, it is offering um, so much important um, detail um, that, you know, we, we're not able to see um, in the quantitative approach that we took, but um, because the the scholarship was uh, like, it, I mean, nobody had really um, looked at this issue of land dispossession um, at, from a, a, a quantitative and, and sort of national level perspective. So that's really what we were offering as a way of like complementing this like really rich body of, of work um, that's that's been growing. Um, so I, I think I, it's just I think it's important that we um, uh, emphasize that this is like um, a quantitative approach that's really like uh, I think working in like good synergy with the, the existing literature. Um, but we got access to the uh, data that's collected by um, the Center for Monitoring the Indian Economy, uh, CMIE. And uh, this is a large data set on all capital investment projects in India. And the data set offers a lot of um, information about the ownership of um, capital investment projects, uh, whether they're publicly owned, privately owned, or jointly um, uh, public-private um, ownership, the sector of the project location, as well as uh, different events in the life cycle of a project. So this data set had um, information about when projects were announced, when they received environmental clearances, when they faced certain delays. And what was most important for us was the event um, of whether, uh, if at all, the project faced um, problems acquiring land. Um, so we used this data to be to look at um, the at the variation between uh, projects that were acquired uh, that that faced difficulties acquiring land and projects that did not. Um, have these events of land acquisition uh, problems recorded in the... So the land acquisition problems, you're viewing that as a proxy for protest or resistance. That's not just like bureaucratic paperwork or something like that. That's, you're, 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 you're confident that that's actually protest. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, maybe, Mike, you could jump in here. Um, yeah. I would just add that, I mean, this was like a real find for us that we could actually get at it indirectly with this, um, that there was like a, you know, a, 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 a for-profit data set here that was keeping good track of the progress of all capital projects in India because, um, you know, investors wanted that information and, and they were noting um, these reasons for delay among them land acquisition problems, which means one thing in India, which is that, you know, uh, the landowners are 
um, uh, are resisting the project, right? Because they don't want to give up their land. And so this was actually a real find because there's really no other data set like that we know of in the world that allows you to do this. I mean, most governments don't even keep track of the number of people they dispossess. Um, there's not uh, something they have much of an interest in no, right. keeping track of. No, I mean, the Chinese government kept some data on protests, and then it stopped, you know, keeping them um, in government never, you know, kept track. There were some scholars that tried to come up with estimates for total number of people, you know, dispossessed, um, you know, in states, but these were huge estimates and not comprehensive. There's been some other efforts, um, but nothing that could give you this sort of big of an end um, with some claim to kind of representativeness and that actually gets that kind of opposition on the ground. So this, finding this data set was a big find, um, but it was also a mess and not really designed for scholars. So that was where <laughs> Smriti um, applied some amazing kind of data organization and analysis skills that maybe she could talk a little bit about without going too far into the weeds. It was it was very, very messy, but I, th I think, yeah, um, there, it, it it was it was messy, but um, it it did also provide this like a wealth of information, as as Mike said. Um, so it it was useful for us to um, make this intervention in this in the scholarship, um, like both empirically and also theoretically, because what we were able to do was, um, I guess, offer a sort of. Um, uh, correction to uh, like the scholarship on uh, social social movements in general, which tend to focus on cases of mobilization. So we uh, were able to sort of correct for this um, bias of, of selecting on the uh, dependent. Um, and um, yeah, so that despite the messiness of the, the CMIE data, we were able to clean it up and um, use this um, information on um, event of land acquisition problem um, as our um, uh, dependent variable and uh, look at the um, project characteristics. Um, so the, the major ones were ownership of the project sector um, location. And then we also looked at um, a host of uh, uh, variables that would allow us to sort of unpack the importance of the state location of these projects. Um, yeah. So I think that really the, the great thing here, I mean, is that level of systematic data that allows you to see not just when people mobilize, but when they don't, and you can sort of put it in the broader context because that's sort of a lot of the sort of uh, study of the social movements sort of just give you the, the, the impression that like things are popping off all the time and everybody's just in this constant state of revolt and you sort of realize when, that you need some perspective to, to, uh, to, to understand not only why people do mobilize, but why they don't. Um, okay, so, so you went through all this, all this heavy lifting sort of locating cleaning parsing this the, the, the these data and then so what 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 did you find what was the what was, what, what were the sort of key results of the, the study um so we find that uh, the sector of the project is um really important in terms of determining um, the likelihood of whether a project is going to face um, problems acquiring land um and our in particular, um, our analysis uh, points to the um, to large-scale infrastructure projects and uh, special economic zones or SEZs um, as 
really uh, key arenas of contention around land dispossession. And this um, is a finding that um, um, sort of confirms what uh, other scholars have also uh, found uh, on. So by infrastructure, you're talking, I mean, like these are the things that get a lot of headlines about protests against dams and, you know, big, you know, industrial parks and stuff or like stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, what's interesting is that when we um, look at infrastructure projects um, in particular, that's when the ownership um, of a project becomes uh, statistically significant, um, when we like focus um, in on infrastructure projects. Um, but otherwise... Um, in ownership meaning? Oh, whether it's like publicly um, or privately owned. Okay. And that private infrastructure projects are more likely to get resisted than public sector ones. That we didn't find ownership significant looking at every single sector. It also makes sense because infrastructures are also, you know, are also the big projects. They're historically public, you know, publicly developed. Um, and so uh, anyway, for reasons we, we discussed that, you know, it, these types of projects might be more explosive than like a publicly developed ones when you're just kind of doing, you know, privatized infrastructure, which is kind of something the Indian government started doing in the post-liberalization period. Um, yeah. Cool. And the other so, sectors, yeah. Go ahead. So the sector, the sector really matters where, 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 where you're, what type of project, what sector the project is trying to grab land for. And Most projects and SEZs are more problematic than manufacturing, you know, um, you know, projects. Um, mm -hmm. Surprisingly, mining was not as, problematic as we thought it would be given you know what we know about a lot of resistance to mining projects um, interesting okay so sector really matters ownership matter whether it's public or private particularly when we're talking when we're zeroing in on the infrastructure okay so that that's one thing and then um, we uh, find that the state location of the project um, is also really important um, in terms of uh, determining this uh, likelihood of uh, the project facing uh, protests against um, land dispossession. And I would just um, say on this uh, question of state location, um, the, like when we, we looked at this in two ways, um, and again, without getting into like the, the technicalities of it, um, like one approach, one way that we looked at state location sort of revealed um, that there's like a host of political context um, factors of, related to the political context and political dynamics that are uh, that that are important for determining um, uh, protests against land uh, dispossession, but um, we can't like we can't capture all of those really complicated dynamics and histories um, in a quantitative model. But, but our uh, finding is that, you know, these um, historical dynamics, for example, or dynamics that we really have to get at, um, like through qualitative analysis is important, but, um, you know, this is something that we like that our quantitative model um, sort of fine. So I think that's important um, in terms of like how this paper is sort of setting um, uh, setting up an agenda, we hope uh, for, you know, for further study. 
Um, and then we also look at uh, sort of the like the political context um, by looking political and political economic context by looking at a number of um, variables that help us get at the agrarian um, uh, context. Um, so here we find um, that uh, like a number of the agrarian context variables that we um, were looking at um, were significant, such as average uh, land holding size. Um, and um, the percentage of land um, held by uh, scheduled tribes um, it was another uh, significant. Um, Can fact. you just explain for the listeners what scheduled tribes are, since not everybody would necessarily know that? Oh, yeah, sure. Sorry. Um, they're um, uh, indigenous or uh, in India, India um, Adivasi. Um, uh, tribal groups um, that uh, that have been historically marginalized um, in uh, yeah in 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 India um, and historically have led a lot of the anti dam struggles um, and anti mining okay. struggles. Um, so it's significant so that we in fact find that areas with a high percentage of land owned by scheduled tribes did have higher land acquisition problems. Um, the other surprising agrarian context variable was the, the the land was the land tenure that we found in areas with high incidence of um, leased land uh, that you had more um, resistance you had you had more likelihood of opposition to land acquisition. Interesting. And then the final the final factor, Smith, if you want to talk about this, is the political party uh, dynamics was the, um, if the, the greater number of opposition parties effectively, um, the, the greater the likelihood of, um, or I should say the more, the greater the number of competitive parties at the state level translated into a greater likelihood of um, land acquisition problems in the state. So more party competition, more protest is the, the, the short version. Cool, interesting. So. So amongst all, so there's, there's a bunch of different findings coming out of this really detailed analysis. And you've talked a little bit about a few of the surprising findings, but I'd like to sort of have you draw that out a bit more about like what, 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 found, what did you find most surprising about your findings? Well, one thing that was the opposite of what we expected was on the land tenure, um, because we thought that, um, you know, areas that had a low percentage of leased in land Right, which t tends to be a place where you have, say, like a you know relatively egalitarian social agrarian social structure with lots of kind of like small um, you know farmers that own their own land and cultivate their own land. We thought that was actually where you'd have the most protest, you know, based on um, you know maybe a sort of understanding of some cases um, and you know in historical literature on peasants, you know, where in that kind of setting would be easier to collectively mobilize um, and. Uh, that the you know that um, self-cultivating farmers will have a greater stake in their land, whereas tenants don't. Because um, yeah, they're feeling like it's their land that's literally being taken away when you right. have those, these groups of small farmers. Yeah, but of course, I think our mistake was only that we were thinking about one part of that equation, <laughs> right? Which was the tenants. Is also the landlords and farmers. And we thought about it more. Of course, we know of all these cases in India where um, you actually had large farmers and landlords organize the protests. Um, 
but basically for, you know, to increase their own compensation, usually not kind of in, in consultation with, uh, you know, the tenants who don't really get compensation when their land is acquired. Um, so in hindsight, it does make sense. And that's how we made sense of it. Um, you know, in lots of parts of India, you have these very unequal agrarian social structures, but the large farmers in this context have a lot of political power. Um, you know, and again, our dependent variable, we don't know if those farmers, how they were protesting, if they were demanding higher compensation, if they wanted to, you know, stop their dispossession altogether. And so um, if you think about it more, what we're probably capturing was that dynamic of protest, right? It's like large farmers um, in those kind of unequal landlordist sharecropping kind of contexts who are, you know, fighting the state often militantly and with some success, but it could be just, you know, to get more of a, of a buyout. Um, so, mm -hmm. so it made sense in retrospect, but it wasn't what we expected to find. Um, and we think it also just raises a whole bunch of questions that need to be further answered, like with qualitative research. Um, we did, of course, expect that, um, you know, the smaller the holding, uh, average holding, the, the more land acquisition problems, because you just the state has to negotiate with more farmers, right, for every, say, 100 acres it wants to acquire. Um, the other thing that was surprising, I mentioned the, the lack the, the mining didn't emerge as one of the top, you know, sources of land acquisition protests. Um, we're not quite sure why, <laughs> um, but perhaps it's just, you know, that there's a whole lot of underdocumented land acquisition problems in these other sectors, right? That don't get the same type of maybe attention. Um, maybe we, we didn't expect the opposition parties to have such a high effect, but that was, you know, I mean, that was just, a, it was interesting that it came across um, so strongly. And I think finally, it was surprising to us that, um, you know, in, in India, the reputation is, you know, you have states like Gujarat, right, which is where the current prime minister was, you know, chief minister has a very pro-business, you know, reputation. And when, um, and then the other extreme, you have like West Bengal and, you know, they just protest all the time and it's a bad business environment. And when they stopped, you know, a car factory, farmers stopped a car factory there, they went to Gujarat, right? So we had this kind of poll of, you know, West Bengal and Gujarat in our mind, and that's kind of reflected in the literature. Um, but we found several states that were actually, in sense, you know, to put it this way, better at dispossessing land than Gujarat. <laughs> and, and several that were worse at dispossessing land um, than West Bengal, right? Or to put it conversely, where farmers <laughs> um, are, uh, you know, protest less and where they protest more or, you know, um, where the protest gets more traction. So those are, I think, the big su surprises to us. Cool. But I, I mean, we should say that this is basically such, you know, no one's really tried to explore this in this way. So kind of it's like all new, like none of this has really been established before any of the findings. But those are things that mm -hmm. kind of surprised us. Yeah. Again, I think probably because like Smita was talking about the vast majority of the scholarship is on these sort of positive cases of, of mobilization and based in case studies that don't really allow for that systematic analysis of what are the key general factors. Right. And I would, I would say there are cases of acquiescence. I mean, my own book is really about a case of acquiescence um, and there are a few others, but, but the point is like, you know, there's a case study here in Rajasthan, there's a case study in Gujarat and, you know, and we try to sort of, um, deduce you know the factors at work in those in those cases but um i think this allowed us to step back and and um do that a little more systematically and then like refine the kinds of questions that then the qualitative you know sociology really needs to answer because we can't you can't answer it with a statistical um study like this it, it raises more questions than answers absolutely and 
you you just mentioned quiescence there, and and um, I think that for me, as I was reading the paper, one thing I found surprising was precisely that the seeming rarity of resistance to, to land dispossession, especially you know, to the extent if you've been if you've read any of this literature, like I said, you it's all positive cases. So you sort of feel like there's all this, you know, this this uh, tremendous resistance to to dispossession. But overall, in your results, you found that evidence of any kind of disruption in only three percent of the cases. So I guess, do you see this as an instance of sort of one of those central facts that I drive home with my students when I teach social movements, which is that in the face of injustice and oppression, the default response is kind of quiescence or acceptance and not not to mobilize? Or do you see that there's something else going on here, or is it a bit of both? Um. Yeah, I think one one thing that is important to um, emphasize in um, in our paper is that this, um, like, w when we say, oh, maybe it's like the way we talk about the um, like the importance of like this this figure of three percent um, because it is likely um, an under underestimation in our case because we don't actually know from this data um, how many projects required uh, land acquisition to to begin with. Um, so it, it's it's likely yeah that we're underestimating the problem. But even when we look at uh, we sort of weigh the impact of this three percent, um, it is it is quite significant. Um, just to give you a sense of that, um, the total value of um, projects that uh, uh, faced um, problems acquiring land was. Um, uh, about 22 trillion um, Indian rupees, or that's close to 370 billion US dollars. Uh, and so that amounts to like 20% of the total value of all projects or like capital investment that's captured in this data set. So, uh, you know, we can't uh, necessarily like fully um, estimate the cost of land acquisition problems uh, because, you know, there's some um, important questions about like uh, like who who who's uh, facing the costs, um, you know, farmers or capitalists. But we can say that the, it's quite significant um, that yeah, uh, one fifth of um, the total value in this data set um, is sort of uh, like held up due to um, problems acquiring land. So I think like while 3% seems like a, a small number, I, I we still um, th think that it's uh, significant, um, like the, yeah, our analysis points to uh, this being a significant um, problem. And I would just add, I mean, we have a big end here. It's like 22,000 projects, I believe, in our data set. And we found like 780 of those with you know, um, serious like land acquisition problems. So that, that's a pretty big number. Um, there's over also, the entire period of this study, over the entire yeah, which was only about um, like a decade. A decade, yeah. Um, and the other thing to say is that you know some some folks sort of they didn't do as comprehensive analysis of the data, but they sort of went and looked at a subset of the CMIE projects and found that like three times as many had land acquisition problems than um, than CMIE reported. 
So CMI is definitely underreporting the problem. So we worried about whether there was some bias to the underreporting, and we kind of did an analysis, and it didn't seem like it. Like it seemed like the omissions are basically randomly distributed um, in ways that don't wouldn't seem to you know bias our you know our um, uh, you know our, our primary concern, which is explain the variation. Um, but so we don't you know we, we think that basically the problem is 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 a lot higher than that number. Like there's a lot more. Yeah resistance that that stalls projects than, than that number would yeah. suggest so there may be so it's still it's a minority of cases regardless but it's cases that that pack a punch in terms of their financial impact and there's probably some underreporting going on it's, yeah it's, there's a lot of yeah. them and posing a significant obstacle to capital right yeah. which is something we know by the way the indian state has responded to them but um yeah Okay, so uh, you're listening to the uh, Marxist Sociology blog. I'm uh, your host, Barry Eidlin, and I'm here with uh, Mike Levian and Smriti Upadhyay of Johns Hopkins University, and we're talking about their great uh, new paper in Politics and Society, which focuses on land dispossession in India. Um, so... As I see it, if we're just going back to your findings, uh, the results point to basically two sets of factors that affect the likelihood of mobilization. Um, you can sort of look at the structural basket and the political basket, if you will. And I'd like to dig into these a bit more and with an eye towards getting at kind of the why of what's going on. So if we're looking first at the, these structural factors, uh, Obviously, you found that the sector in which the proposed project is located, um, so first, whether the ownership question, whether it's public or private, and then whether it's for real estate, infrastructure, manufacturing, special economic zones, or so, so on and so forth, that, that part really matters a lot. And then what also matters is the structure of agriculture on the land that's being grabbed. So it depends on what, what, what the land is proposed to be used for and then what it's currently being used for, basically. So the, the, so the size of the land holding, the amount of leased land, how much land is uncultivated, how much is claimed by scheduled tribes, stuff like that. So could you talk a bit more about what you think is driving that so why we're seeing that variation when it comes to these structural factors. So what is making people more or less likely to resist land grabs? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, this is something we obviously both think about a lot. We're both ethnographers, primarily <laughs> collaborating on a quantitative project with you know Smriti's quantitative skills. But I think what we've been thinking a lot about is um, you know how like what what does this actually mean, um, and why do we why do we find this? Um, I mean. The I think you know from my own ethnographic work. I mean, I've really came uh, like the argument kind of I make in my book is really about how um, the kind of increase decreasingly sort of developmental purposes for which the Indian state you know is dispossessing land um, is sort of a major factor, sort of increasing the overall level of sort of resistance to land dispossession in the neoliberal period. You know, in the last 20, 30 years, the Indian state has started grabbing land for like you know private projects. Um, uh, instead of just public sector ones, and increasingly for non-labor intensive, like real estate type speculative projects, right, that have less kind of developmental, um, you know, benefits for local populations and so on. Um, so I, I call this a shift in regimes of dispossession. 
But, you know, I study in SCZ and kind of both of these things are happening at once, right? This is a private project, not a public project. And it's also like a lot of real estate and like IT instead of manufacturing. Um, so we saw this as a way to sort of get a little bit, you know, uh, you know, sort of, if you will, isolate those a little bit, like to what extent is sector important, to what extent is ownership important. Um, and then, you know, of course, the question is like, we find a little bit of both. Um, but so like, why? <laughs> Um, and, you know, we think that, like, we can't exactly answer that here, but based on kind of the, the research, you know, we and others have done, we, you know, I think we would say that um, certainly the material benefits of the project has to be like central, you know, farmers look at a manufacturing project, they might be persuaded they'll get a job like in a, in a factory, um, but you look at a real estate project and there's really nothing in it for them. Um, you know, unless you're really going to compensate them, you know, very highly, which is often not the first thing Indian state decides to do. Um, so that's probably a lot of it is a calculation of material benefits. It makes a lot of sense to us that real estate projects and SDGs are far more, um, you know, controversial or, you know, are, are far more likely to be resisted than a real estate project. Um, but then, you know, there's also the question of like legitimacy, like, you know, um, is it also that, the state is grabbing, you know, the state for many, Indian state for many decades was able to kind of legitimize, you know, legitimize, you know, dispossessing land for big, you know, infrastructure projects. This is in the public interest, right? This is for development of the nation and so on, sacrifice for the nation. And, you know, is it more difficult to do that um, when you're kind of grabbing land for like, you know, reliance, some huge multinational corporation or a foreign corporation, things like that. So we think there's probably a mix of both and they're pretty hard to dissociate in the minds of farmers, you know, legitimacy and material interests. And so that's where we just think kind of like further ethnography um, that gets at some of these things and does some more fine tuned comparisons might be able to push our analysis um, further. Um, on the, you know, agrarian factors, like what's happening there, um, the, the, you know, the holding size is straightforward, right? That's just sort of like, you know, smaller land holdings, more farmers you have to deal with, the more likelihood you're gonna have holdouts and so on, right? Um, the, the land tenure one, um, I mean, I just went into that a little bit, but I think that was the, the surprising one for us. And um, what we probably have beneath this like, you know, you know, statistical findings is like a very complex picture that is not, you know, that we can't really deal with in the data of, you know, in some places you're gonna have certain kinds of resistance, right? Where the whole village mobilizes and, you know, in other cases where like, you know, fraction of the elite mobilizes in some places where, you know, the, the tenants mobilize, but the landlords don't. I mean, we know from the qualitative research that there's that kind of, um, you know, variation. So that we found a few of these things um, is significant because those hadn't been established. But at the same time, we think that like probably the qualitative dimensions of, of the, the particular class and caste structures, the political histories of those villages, all these things vary so widely across India um, that we think probably it's like the qualitative dimensions of the things that are, are wind up going to be more important, but that we can't capture in this way. Um, you know, in some, some places you have long histories of peasant mobilization going back, you know, uh, decades or centuries, in some places you don't. Um, and so anyway, we think it's interesting that we found a few of these things, like, for example, that, you know, yes, there's a big literature on Adivasis resisting dams, and we do find that's still important. But we also kind of confirm the impression that, okay, large farmers in these in egalitarian plains, you know, villages are also now even maybe perhaps a bigger 
um, you know, force behind um, land acquisition uh, protest. Smidia, did you want to add something? Um, no, I think, uh, yeah, just the, the, I just wanted to emphasize, I mean, it's something that I brought up uh, earlier too, but um, since Mike just brought it up again, and it's, um, I think really like one of the central um, uh, points in our paper that um, the, this, like the, what's going on here is, um, is, you know, so, uh, complex um, that uh, we, we need like both a um, like this quantitative um, perspective or analysis um, as well as the the uh, qualitative like investigations into into some of these complexities um, and I think that like the yeah the what's nice about um, the What's nice about our analysis, I think, is that we we kind of like showcase that, you know, that these things uh, like these two types of investigations should really go hand in hand because like states are so important, like the state context is so important um, in terms of like our indicator variable. But like what that really means is that um, like these complex histories um, and uh, agrarian relations and uh, like um, yeah, protest um, like uh, patterns are 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 really important, but we can't capture them uh, so straightforwardly in a in a model. Yeah. So now we just add that. that <laughs> well, what this allows us to do is to hold other things constant, but in the real world, those things are never held constant. So there's just you know like interaction <laughs> effects yeah. of new things. Yeah. You know, it's just um, let's just say there's a, a massive massive research program um yeah. you know begin to be able to really answer a lot of these questions um yeah so like like all good research the paper raises far more questions than it ends up answering <laughs> so, okay. so let's um so so sweetie you started heading in this direction so let's turn to those political factors and so like we talked about earlier you, one of your key findings is that this degree of political competitiveness in a state dramatically affects the likelihood of mobilization against land grabs. So more competition, the more competitive the party system, the more likely we see mobilization. So what's going on there? What do you think is happening? So um, for the longest time, I mean, land dispossession protests in India are something that, you know, I've been interested in for almost two decades now. And if, if you were in India, say like, in 2003, <laughs> um, you would look around and say, uh, first of all, this is not a national issue. It's not an electoral issue. There's no parties that care about it. The people organized around this are like grassroots, non-party left social movements, you know, resisting dams and things like that. They're very far from power and like the media and mainstream politicians don't pay attention to them. Around like the late mid to late 2005, things changed very quickly, really around 2007. Then you had these very high profile standoffs, um, uh, many of them in West Bengal, um, but elsewhere, where you know farmers were refusing to give their land for an SEZ or a car factory, um, like new type, new economy type projects, private companies. Um, and they were, you know, in, in several instances massacred by the state. Um, and in the and, and one of the most notorious. Um, you know, incidents was in the kind of communist left, you know, ruled West Bengal. And this, um, you know, was picked up by an opposition party. That was a fairly, you know, opportunistic, 
I'd say like petty bourgeois regional party. Um, but that gave serious support to the farmers in those two places. And it was a crucial factor in the left losing that election, um, the subsequent elections. And then now they're really decimated. I mean, they're out of power. And um, that was a key to a lot of political parties across India, that this is actually a big electoral issue. It's a wedge issue. It's something you can need to be careful about if you're in power. And if you're out of power, it's something that, you know, might actually help you get back into power. So you started even seeing like national politicians like Rahul Gandhi, like show up at a protest in you know, Uttar Pradesh where Congress wasn't in power and like, you know, give solidarity to the farmers and denounce, you know, the chief minister of that state as being callous, right? Of course, in places where the Congress is in power, they're doing the same kinds of land grabs, but this became a kind of electoral dynamic, you know, it became a wedge issue. Um, and, you know, that came with obviously costs for, you know, also, I mean, in dangers for a lot of movements uh, being co-opted by parties and things like that, who might be totally opportunistic and instrumental and may not share kind of the broader, uh, you know, political goals of some of those movements historically, you know, aligned to a kind of Indian socialist anarcho-Gandhian kind of, you know, worldview. Um, Anarcho-Gandhianism, I don't think I've ever heard of that. <laughs> that's how I would put it, you know, a kind of, okay. yeah, a sort of um, like a non-party left sort of milieu that has a lot of those types of influences in India. Um, so what happened though was like, now you have, look, BJP politicians in some cases taking up the issue of farmers in a state where the BJP is not in power. Um, you have, you know, now the left start doing it in certain places, right? So it really becomes an electoral issue. And so, um, you know, we wanted to somehow sort of like bring that into the analysis is, you know, can we somehow find, um, you know, a variable that captures the role of these opposition parties have started to take in land disposition politics from like, you know, roughly the mid 2000s onwards. Um, and so that was an interesting finding that in fact, like where more opposition parties you know, our, our, our variable cap captures some, uh, some, you know, factors in their, their, their strength in the state, the number of seats they have. But so we have more, a greater number of viable opposition parties, you have more land acquisition problems holding everything constant. Um, now, our interpretation of that is something like, well, there's at least, you know, there's more parties, uh, but there's more opposition parties that have a serious chance of, you know, power, they, they might be more likely to kind of support this kind of struggle. It could also be, in the case where you have a like a real duopoly, basically a Congress BJP state, where we found you know uh, fewer land acquisition um, uh, protests, that um, you know that there's a disincentive to take it up because they're kind of going you know always oscillating in and out of power, and when they're in power, they're you know um, doing the same types of you know uh, land dispossession for various projects. Um, so that's basically our interpretation. But again, we think there's like a ton of questions that are, are begged by the findings. It's not necessarily the, most, the perfect variable. Um, uh, it sounds like, sounds like from what you're saying that, it, that the land dispossession issue is more of an opportunistic partisan issue rather than something that breaks down along sort of issues of political principle. So, so the party's ideology doesn't really affect whether or not it's going to take up the land dispossession issue. It's more about not, whether they're in or out of power. Yeah, yeah, not anymore, right? And, and it matters of the context, right? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's if it's a very competitive um, polity, and what matters here is really the state level, because um, that's where most of the acquisition is happening, um, is state governments. Um, now, of course, you know, 
the, you have to draw a distinction between the farmers who just start protesting, usually on their own. Um, they, you know, they form an ad hoc organization, anti-blank struggle committee, save the, you know, blank movement, and then they look for allies. And historically, that was just like, you know, National Alliance of People's Movements, these kind of national NGOs and, and grassroots groups. But now increasingly, it is these parties that, yeah, largely for instrumental reasons, um, you know, support these things. Um, sometimes. Uh, and our data does say, look, there's dangers to that, as, as a lot of qualitative work has shown. Our data does suggest that, like, when those parties are involved, there is, seems to be some greater chance of, like, stopping installing projects. But, of course, we don't know if those projects, you know, we group in together the stalling and the stopping. And, it, you know, we, we don't know the ultimate outcome of those, of those, of all those protests. Right. Yeah. Um, and what role the parties played, if they, you know, encourage them to like accept compensation instead of stopping the project, all those types of things that like if you're that movement, you're worried about. Right. <laughs> um, but it does just suggest that, look, parties are, are important now in shaping like these these struggles. Now, um, here's one of those annoying questions that goes far beyond your data, but perhaps we can you can draw on your broader expertise and knowledge of, of the case, but do you have a sense as to whether these protests against land grabs have increased in recent years as the Congress has sort of lost its political hegemony in recent decades? So, so obviously you were talking earlier about, you know, going back to 2003, this doesn't get politicized. It's not something that the parties take up, but I'm curious as to the incidence of Protests. So, you know, has the creation of a more competitive party ecosystem spurred greater social mobilization? So, I think one thing to keep in mind in India is the distinction between the state and the national level, right? So, most of the land acquisition dynamics that we're looking at here are really about state level politics. Um, and so, what's happening on the national stage is not necessarily, you know, translated to what's happening at the, at the local stage. Um, at the local level. Um, and I'm not sure I would even characterize what's happening in India as a more competitive polity because in a sense, what we're seeing is this consolidation of BJP hegemony, which is of course what Smriti's research is really um, about. But so what I would say about the Congress is that, uh, you know, these, these protests started exploding really in the, the UPA2 government. Um, so that was when the Congress was still in power and uh, so what know, time period are we talking about? This is like the mid to late 2000s. Okay. Um, so the Congress is still in power and it's beset by a lot of corruption scandals. Um, it's pushed neoliberalism pretty strongly. There's lots of opposition to it. And only after kind of all of these, you know, very high profile protests and, you know, they're just kind of spread everywhere, right? Is the, and, um, and, and, and once this starts to become a kind of, clearly an electorally salient issue, the Congress government passes a big national land acquisition law, right, to reform this draconian law that's in place. Um, but it doesn't, that's not really sufficient to help them in the election, though that's not why they lost the, the election, which is for many other um, reasons. But one of the, the only other thing I would say about the Congress is what's interesting is that I think since it lost, it really started to take up the issue a bit more um, so as soon as the Modi government came into power, tried to dilute this relatively more, more pro-farmer law that the Congress had, you know, 
um, you know, put into place with actually bipartisan support, but capital really lobbied strongly against it. Modi came in with a promise to like fast track, you know, development projects. And if that requires steamrolling farmers, so be it. Um, but, you know, you had Sonia Gandhi and, you know, these people on like protests, like in the streets over land, which is something I thought I'd never see really. Um, and so it was something that seemed to enliven the Congress a little bit for a while. And it's something that now like all opposition parties are taking it you know, taking up, um, you know, perhaps because Congress has less power, they're more involved now in, in those protests. Um, but it is something, you know, like Rahul Gandhi has made a point of, you know, uh, Jay Ramaramesh, some big Congress politicians are very involved now in this issue. Smriti, did you want to add something about political hegemony and the BJP and Congress? <laughs> no, I was just thinking um, like about um, an anecdote I remember from, um, from Gujarat, which is that like in 2013, um, when the BJP was in power there um, in the state of Gujarat under uh, Narendra Modi's um, like chief um, uh, minister ministerial rule, um, there were so many uh, newspaper headlines of rogue um, uh, members of uh, the BJP that were leading a protest uh, against land dispossession, which was really surprising um, because part of the reason I was in Gujarat was to was to study it as this like hegemony of the uh, BJP. And so there was, and, and in fact, like the area that I was studying and uh, which is labor, um, I was finding that people had this impression that Gujarat was a very, um, like uh, was, was quiet in terms of, um, uh, of, of of labor protests, but but all, a lot of the uh, newspaper headlines were about these, um, yeah, rogue um, politicians of the BJP that were leading struggles like against uh, effect, like against the uh, land acquisition policies of of Narendra Modi, which, uh, as Mike mentioned before, you know, had been sort of heralded as this like um, yeah, like fast track to acquiring land with with very few problems with the, the um, picture at the, like the national or subnational level was, was different. Um, so I, just to say that this, it is like a, a politically uh, contentious issue, like across the board. Um, Interesting, cool. So I know that, um, that your paper is more about creating a political sociology of dispossession, but building on this, talk about parties, I want to hear what your findings have to say about the political sociology of parties, which is uh, something that is, of course, near and dear to my own heart and my own research. So I think one of the key insights of the new sociology of political parties that's emerged in recent years is this idea that parties play a key role in shaping, shaping political issues and coalitions in that struggle for political power rather than simply responding to existing issues of or of uh, or or reflecting existing political blocks or coalitions so do you see that kind of dynamic at work in your results i i think our you know understanding this issue supports more of a reflection model <laughs> in the sense okay. that I think Political parties are really, you know, um, their involvement in this really is the end product of a set of, um, 
you know, political economic forces that have to do with the way states have transformed under neoliberalism to grab land for corporations, which refract through agrarian social structures to create protests that then became so strong that they forced parties to get involved. So I think it's really more of a social structure to party um, causal arrow in this case. <laughs> Though now that they're involved, of course, you know, they've changed the dynamic, right, of the, mm -hmm. of the politics. So, um, uh, it's not a. Well, there's a fluid relationship. So. Yeah, but I, I I'd, yeah. I'd say that the um, determinancy in the last instance is <laughs> uh, the social structure up to the parties. Interesting. Okay. Cool. Yeah, and maybe what? just to say, like you know, maybe like what's interesting um, is also this sort of his like the importance of like a historical perspective. Like what we're finding is that the the protests. Um, like were so powerful that like uh, parties across uh, the spectrum had to address this issue. But over time, you know, the involvement of parties uh, like also changes the structure. Uh, so it, that's yeah, true. Like the it changes the nature of the struggle. And um, so yeah, you know, looking at uh, like how the how it transforms over time is probably um, like an important lens uh, for understanding mm -hmm. this, which you know si like synthesizes both the um, like creativity of parties uh, as well as like the the reflection um, model of uh, parties. That's an important. I guess, thing. Go ahead. Because protests has become you know the protests from below has become strong enough that it's in some ways modified at least the regime of dispossession, you know, um, so there is a kind of iterative, you know, element to this. Um. It is interesting to see that, I mean, I guess the part that I would like to see a bit more about is that fracturing of the, of the consensus uh, amongst parties, right? The degree to which sort of the, the, the parties are sort of unified in favor of dispossession, essentially, or just not mentioning it and letting it proceed apace. And then over the course of the early 2000s, parties sort of taking it up as an issue um, for political advantage is, is sort of an interesting process in and of itself. And I would, I, you know, I would say it's not just a like an ideological consensus, it's that there's very strong um, uh, competitive pressures to create an investment climate to get capital into your state and to do that requires you know making land available which involves dispossession so there's a strong set of you know incentives there and i think um that's a bit uneven and what we show is is probably you know also that that incentive is very strong in like a lot of the more dynamic you know um wealthier states um uh, you know, to some extent in West Bengal, when Mamta Banerjee came to power after, you know, deposing the left, I, I actually did slow down land acquisition quite a lot. <laughs> um, and I don't know if I've seen analysis of really what the effect of that has been for like, you know, the West Bengal economy. Um, but I can't think of any really other places. For the most part, you know, a, a group will take it up, a party will take it up when they're in power, out of power. And then when they get into power, they just do the same thing. Yeah. That's what the incentive structure is. Okay. They might increase the compensation, you know, to farmers. <laughs> you need to have some product differentiation between the parties, right? Um, so, as I said at the outset, um, you know, the, the paper, so we're, we're talking here with Mike Levian and Smriti Padyev of uh, Johns Hopkins. 
University. And the title of your paper is Toward a Political Sociology of Dispossession, emphasizing the toward here. The implication, of course, being that this political sociology of dispossession does not already exist. Um, so given how central land dispossession is to the history and politics of so much of the modern world we live in today, why do you think this political sociology of dispossession doesn't already exist? Or to the extent that it does exist, what do you think needs to be added or revised? I mean, what we argue is incipient. I mean, it's not like sociology of labor, right? Which, you know, both you and Schmitty are very involved. Like there's no ASA section. There's no kind of well-defined field with some accepted findings, a sort of shared set of questions, people in conversation with each other. Um, like that's very, you know, that, that is, I think, emerging now. Um, so that's one thing. And the, other, and the other thing to say is that even though there's a large literature in some ways on land dispossession, um, a lot of it, I mean, a lot of it's from the last 10 years. A lot of it's in anthropology, geography, not sociology. Um, you know, as a result of that, it, it tends, a lot of it tends to take the form of, I studied this place. I didn't find the same thing as you did there. I don't care why. I'm just going to say it's different. Put my own label on it. Publish my paper, you know, paper, right? It's not like interest in this question of why does my case look different than someone else's, right? Which it doesn't need, involve, need to involve even a formal comparison or much less, you know, statistical analysis, but people just aren't even asking those types of questions of like, why is it different here than there? Um, the types of things that sociologists tend to answer, right? So I think that's emerging. I think we're seeing, there was a lot of special issues on this when land grabs became, you know, a big deal beginning like a decade ago. Um, and a lot of it took that form. And I think there's increasingly like interest, you know, I've been involved in, um, you know, like special issues we're comparing India and China or we're kind of comparing, um, you know, lots of different countries. Uh, in India, I think there's a movement towards, you know, it's which is, you know, in India, there's a whole, so much variation, right? That's just a, a whole world of comparative cases there. And I think it's slowly moving there, but still there's not actually that many sociologists. It tends to be a lot of development studies, anthropologists, geographers, right? So they don't approach it exactly the same way. Um, sociologists come to the game. It's come late. I think we have something distinctive to add. And I think what we're just trying to do is say, um, like push it forward a little bit and saying, look, here's a, a way that you can might ask some kind of comparative questions. Um, here's some of the factors that like might be important in shaping like variation and in, in, in politics. And you know, and we only really look at the emergence of opposition, right? That you know stalls a project, right? So we're not even asking like, you know, what form do you know um, these protests take? Um, you know, what are their demands? What are their class com compositions? Um, you know, uh, do they achieve their own objectives right? in some ways? Like we don't, there's so many other questions we're not even, you know, uh, posing here, but that are, you know, equally important um, for a kind of comparative, uh, like, you know, uh, social, like sociological research program um, on this issue, which, you know, we hope more and more people get in, involved in, you know, lots of people are studying this issue. We just hope increasingly they start to ask those types of questions and in a more comparative, at least implicitly comparative and hopefully more explicitly comparative kind of way. Do you, have any, do you want to venture any guesses as to why you think sociology in particular has been late to the game on this? I mean, especially given that we've got this tradition going back to Marx talking about the enclosures and capital and stuff like that. A, it's parochial. Um, 
So a lot of it's focused on the US um, and land dispossession has been a bigger issue in recent decades in the global South. Of course, it's a big issue in the US still, right? Like you can look no farther than, you know, um, East Baltimore where my own university, our own university is grabbing land. Uh, you know, this is a long history in the US, but it, um, you know, it's, it exists in these little literatures, right? So there's like a little bit of stuff on eminent domain and like say urban sociology, the people study elsewhere kind of all, you know, in like say development <laughs> sociology, um, but dispossession as a kind of social relation in its own right, like the exploitation of labor is just never, it's never been in kind of the major sociological typologies. And I think, you know, if you look, go back to our classics and Marx, you know, he talked about it, but he really only talked about it in the, uh, you know, the, the birth, the initial transition to capitalism. And that's what most of the literature in sociology has been. If you go back to the Brenner debate or, you know, even Barrington Moore, right, it was about these initial, like, yes, there's land dispossession, but really just in the kind of, you know, transition from a feudal to a capitalist society. There's no really theory of its kind of ongoing, um, you know, nature. Um, Weber, similarly, I mean, he saw it and similar to Marx, he just didn't think it was the as important a factor in that transition. Um, and then Durkheim, obviously, it's just glossed over, you know, in the dissolution of segmentary societies and so on. Um, and, uh, and I think in, for some reason, it was also absent in development sociology for many decades. Um, and I think, you know, the focus on, say, developmental states, right, never looked that closely ethnographically about what de developmental states were doing. They were dispossessing tens of millions of people for dams and steel towns, you know. Um, so it started to get recognized by sociologists outside of the U.S. Um, like in, in India, it became a huge literature from the 70s and 80s onwards and an increasingly critical one, um, but really like in political ecology and geography, even more than sociology. Um, so it took a while for, I think, U.S. sociologists to really um, pick up on its importance. And that really came in the late 2000s when there was this growing kind of awareness of like, you know, transnational farmland acquisition and other types of things. And, um, you know, Harvey had his sort of very abstract theory of accumulation by dispossession, which grouped land grabs in with a whole bunch of other things. And it, and it was very confusing in lots of ways, but got people interested. <laughs> um, the anti-globalization upsurge, people started to get interested in these kinds of struggles that weren't like really workers, um, you know, but responding to the various dislocations of neoliberalism. So I think it took all that to kind of bring sociologists kind of in the US at least to get interested in this issue. Cool. Did you want to add anything, Smriti? Mm, no, I think, um, okay. yeah. Okay, great. So we're, we're almost out of time here, but just to, to wrap up, um, I wanted sort of a more forward looking question and ask you if you see anything in your findings, your analysis that can help inform the work of those who are resisting land dispossession today? It's a really good question. And I feel like, uh, sadly, uh, the lessons for like, say, activists working on this issue are modest. <laughs> um, I, I think one thing is encouragement. Try to try try to get the right type of project at your at your site. So that That's part of the problem. Is okay. Look, if you're interested in you know, if you don't want to, if you're a farmer, start off with the farmer, right? If if you don't want to give your land up, um, you know, it doesn't matter so much to you if like you're in the wrong state. Like it's this is a very hard to resist in the state. It's very hard to resist this kind of project. You're gonna want if you want to resist that, you're gonna resist it. Um, so that's obviously the pitfalls whenever in sociology you point to structural. Um, you know, factors. Um, but I would say, first of all, encouragement. 
in the sense that, you know, wow, <laughs> like the sum total of the resistance, which can often be hard, doesn't always succeed, but is creating this huge obstacle for capital. That is, I don't even know in what other domain in any way of political struggle, um, you know, having this kind of effect where like you're basically holding say $370 billion at least of capital investments hostage to whether they can get you off your land. So um, I think that's, uh, so it's encouragement that actually these movements can have a huge effect. And, and that's also probably why we've seen the state and parties kind of, you know, have to address this, albeit in, you know, always um, disappointing ways. But, um, you know, the second um, thing I would say is that, you know, it raises a difficult question about the relationship to political parties, right? Because a lot of people in the non-party left who traditionally took up this issue were critical of parties, wanted to be, you know, autonomous, independent, and they have a kind of distinct ideology. They're distrustful of the electoral system and so on. And that makes a ton of sense for a lot of reasons. Um, there's just also like the finding that when parties get involved, there is probably a somewhat greater chance of stopping a project. Well, we don't know, right? Of having an effect on the, 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 the you know, stalling or stopping the project, right? So um, now you could, like, if we could push this farther, we might ask, you know, uh, if we decided we want to go back into this a little further, um, where parties were involved, were they more likely to just stall rather than stop a project? Smriti says she doesn't think so. You looked at this or no? Okay. I'm misreading. Um, yeah, so we, I don't remember if we ever looked into that, but that would be an interesting question maybe for, um, that might have some um, relevance. You know, and I think just the, you know, I think it poses this question of coalitions and class and caste, you know, contradictions within anti-dispossession struggles, because, you know, for a long time, the, like the non-party left movements who were interested in this issue we're sort of like, you know, it's indigenous people versus, you know, the state, or it's the kind of, you know, small farmer, um, you know, versus the state. There's kind of a populist, um, you know, framing to it. And, you know, that's obviously hard to, that became hard to maintain once you have these large farmers, you know, involved who might be BJP supporters and dominant caste, you know, farmers exploiting landless laborers in their village, um, you know, but also trying to stop like a reliance, especially economic zone. So how do you deal with this? Can you bring, can you have coalitions with those groups or not? Do you try to create a coalition of, you know, um, like the small farmers and the, you know, scheduled caste groups, um, uh, scheduled tribes groups, the Adivasis, you know, um, just to think about that question, because I think our findings are a bit, um, you know, recognize that the that the Adivasis are still um, driving a lot of resistance, but then also so are large landlords or rich farmers, probably. That's, I mean, that, and that's in our interpretation of the findings. So I think that's just a kind of a question. Um, and beyond that, I don't think we have that much maybe more to offer. Like if you were a roving activist and just deciding, I don't have that much time, but where am I going to put my efforts? You would say, okay, well, go to, uh, you know, West Bengal and stop a special economic zone. But anyway, that's already what they're probably doing. So, um, you know, and go, go <clears throat> you know, um, go where there's lots of parties, go, go where there's lots of, you know, private special economic zones, um, but maybe also look for these railway projects, right? Which we didn't, weren't on our radar as something that was being resisted. Um, 
but there's all these other projects that you know don't get much as much attention. Um, there might be places where if you're looking to support resistance, there's some there that we might not know about. Really interesting stuff. Um, so we've been speaking with Mike Levian and Smriti Upadhyay of Johns Hopkins University about their brand new paper in the latest issue of Politics and Society. Again, it's entitled Toward a Political Sociology of Dispossession, Explaining Opposition to Capital Projects in India. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, Mike and Smriti, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us at the Marxist Sociology Blog Podcast. Thank you. Anything for Marxist sociology. Indeed. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Marxist Sociology Blog Podcast. I'm your host, Barry Eidlund. Thanks to the section on Marxist sociology of the American Sociological Association for sponsoring the blog and this podcast, and thanks to our editor-in-chief, Mike McCarthy. Thanks also to Sarah Hurd for invaluable technical assistance. For more accessible summaries of current Marxist sociological research, check us out online at www.marxistsociology.com. Until next time, stay inquisitive and never underestimate the power of the organized working class. Mm -hmm.